0: You to take your Bibles and turn to Revelation chapter 1. Revelation chapter 1. If we were doing word association this morning, I wonder what word would come to your mind when someone said Revelation. First word that comes to my mind is last or end. It's the last book in the Bible, right? It's also the last book that was written and its contents include the details about the last times or the end times. What happens at the end? How is this all going to conclude? We're we're living now at a time after the birth and death of Jesus Christ and the resurrection. And we we have seen what has happened in the past. We've learned from history and from the scriptures what has happened, but How is this all going to end? The book of Revelation gives us a a picture about what it's going to be like in the end. And so this morning, I want to introduce the book of Revelation as we begin this 40-week study. And by the end of our time today, I want you to be able to see what the purpose of the book is, why it was written, and what our response should be to knowing these last time events. How should we respond as Christians? What should we do? So let's begin by reading verses 1-3 through of chapter 1. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave Him to show His bondservants, the things which must soon take place, and He sent and communicated it by His angel to His bondservant John, who testified to the Word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ even to all that he saw. Blessed is he who reads and those who hear the words of the prophecy and heed the things which are written in it, for the time is near. Let me begin with an introduction to the book and then we'll look at its content later on. And if you want to take notes, I've put a a um, handout in the bulletin for you to follow along. You see in verse 1 that John identifies himself as the author says that these things were given to or by Jesus Christ through the angels to his bondservant and at the very last word to his bondservant John and then in verse 4 says John to the seven churches that are in Asia verse 9 I John your brother and fellow partaker in the tribulation and kingdom and perseverance he also uh, makes note of himself in chapter 22, verse 8. John was a patriarch, a father of the churches in Asia Asia Minor, which is modern Turkey. And those churches are listed for us in chapters 2 and 3, at least seven of the churches. And he was the last of the 12 disciples to die. He died in the late 90s, likely A.D., probably just before the turn of the century. John, remember, was the brother of James, the son of Zebedee and Salome. And he and James are both disciples of Jesus. And and as one of the disciples of Christ, he he had a special relationship with Christ. Peter, James, and John were kind of on the inner circle of of, uh, Jesus and His teaching. In fact, John is called the disciple whom Jesus loved. He is also known to have written the Gospel of John and three epistles to the churches in Asia Minor, 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John. And so after the Gospel had spread throughout the world at that time, John settled in the city of Ephesus, and he was later arrested by the emperor and banished to an island. And that island's name was called Patmos. Look at chapter 1, verse 9. I, John, your brother and fellow partaker in the tribulation and kingdom and perseverance which are in Jesus was on the island called Patmos because of the Word of God and the testimony of Jesus. So, he was banished to this island under a sort of house arrest. He was still able to do things. He wasn't completely confined, but he was not allowed to leave that island. In this letter here, the book of Revelation that we as we know it, was written to encourage believers at at his time, and I think in our time, to continue in the struggle that is the Christian life until the Savior comes. And the goal of the book is found in chapter 1, verse 1. This is what John is trying to do. This is his purpose. At the end of the verse, or excuse me, in the middle of the verse it says, to show to his bondservants the things which must soon Take place. To show to God's bondservants, God's slaves, God's followers, the things which must must soon take place. So that means if you are considered a bondservant of Jesus Christ, a slave, a follower of Christ, then this study is for you. John wrote this book on the island of Patmos, as I said, in the 90s, probably shortly before his death, maybe in the mid-90s is when he wrote it. And the nature of this book is that it is an eyewitness account of a a vision, a vision that was given to John. John was, was on this island, verse 9 as we see, and he says in verse 10, I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day and I heard behind me a loud voice. And here he goes on to explain that he sees Jesus. And he sees Jesus, and Jesus begins to tell him to write these things down. I want you to write these things down with uh, uh, the things that I'm about to tell to these seven churches. And he he does it to encourage and to challenge them in the places where they are failing them, where they are failing Christ. And then he goes on to show John further visions about what will take place in the future at the end time. So it's an eyewitness account of this vision. Now, there are several ways that we can interpret this book. Some believe that this book has already been fulfilled in the past. That these are simply events that have already taken place. John's recording them. And now we can look at them as historical events rather than prophetic events. Something that will happen still to come. Some others believe that it has been fulfilled throughout the course of history. That these are periods of times that are talked about, and, and these have already been taken place. Some also look at this as an allegory; that these aren't real events that John is talking about. He's simply spiritualizing some 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 things so that we can see that there really is a battle going on between God and Satan. It's not a real physical uh, battle that could be seen with the eyes. It's simply a battle that's going on. So, so that's how we should interpret the book of Revelation. They say that it's not recording real future events. But I think we should take it as that it is uh, recording things that are still to come, beginning with chapter 4, that it is recording things to come. Because if it's taken historically... And Christ has already restored all things to Himself, which we'll find out that He does at the very end. In chapter 22, He is the King over all. There's no one who opposes Him. All those who oppose Him are in the the eternal death house, which is called hell. So, if this is a historical record, this has already taken place, then what's going on in our world? It doesn't seem as if Christ has final rule over all things it seems as if people can get away with sin at times at least for a short period of time right it seems as if Christ didn't finish the job if this is the end if we're in the eschaton the final days then then Christ has left a loose some loose strings Obviously I think that's incorrect. Instead, I think it's better to take this book the way John intended it, and I believe that he was calling for a normal interpretation of these events, a normal interpretation. So, we're going to get we're going to see how that that plays itself out. But let me first show you John's summary of the book in chapter 1 verse 19. It seems as if uh, John receives this word from Jesus. Jesus is speaking here in verse 19. And he lays out for him what the book is going to be about. Therefore, Jesus says to him, write the things which you have seen and the things which are and the things which will take place after these things. Okay. So the very first, things, first thing he tells John to write is the things which you have seen. That would be chapter 1. Okay, Chapter 1 is the things which he has seen. One of the things that he saw was Jesus Christ. He saw this vision while he's on Patmos. So that is something that's past. It's already done. Next, he wants to write, him to write about the things which are. That's chapters 2 and 3. If you're familiar with the book of Revelation, you know that John begins here in chapter 2 with a message to these seven churches. These seven churches that were current during his time, they were seven real churches in Asia Minor. And he's saying, now I want you to write the things which are. So he's talking about John writing past events, which he's already seen, chapter 1. Then current events, chapters 2 and 3. Jesus basically gives a a diagnostic uh, Service, or he, he does a diagnostic service on these seven churches and he relates that to John and he, John um, relates that to the churches. And then finally, he wants John to write about the things which will take place after these things. Chapters 4 through 22. Okay, So, so that, that, that's a good outline for us if we want to see where John is going. Talking about the past, chapter 1, the, the present for John. Chapters 2 and 3, and then the future for John and us, chapters 4 through 22. Now, let me take some time to, to look at, or to make a comment on symbols, because what you're going to find, perhaps this has been your frustration. Turn to chapter 13, chapter 13, verse 1. Perhaps this has been your frustration as you've read through the book of Revelation that there's just too many symbols. I can't figure out what John is trying to say seems too complex. So if we're taking, as I suggested earlier, a normal interpretation, how are we to understand these symbols? Let me give you an example of one in chapter 13, verse 1. And the dragon stood on the sand of the seashore. Then I saw a beast coming out of the sea having ten horns and seven heads. And on his horns were ten diadems, and on his heads were blasphemous names. Okay, so try to picture that for yourself. A beast coming out of the sea with ten horns and seven heads. And what you're going to find is that we've never seen anything like that in our lives. And John comes up with lots of these things that he sees in his vision. So what do these things symbolize? What is trying to be expressed here? Well, I would suggest to you that we can still take a normal interpretation of the book and interpret the symbols properly. For example, in chapter 8, verse 12, you don't have to turn, it, but, turn there, but John talks about the judgment and its effects on the sun, moon, and stars. He says that, that, that there's going to be great cosmic disturbances. Now there, he's talking about real stars. But turn to chapter 9, in verse 1, because now he talks about a different kind of star. So before, he was talking about real stars. Real stars that are up in the sky. Chapter 9, verse 1. Then the fifth angel sounded. This is one of the judgments that comes. And I saw a star from heaven which had fallen to the earth, and the key of the bottomless pit was given to him. That is the star. He opened the bottomless pit, and smoke went up out of the pit like the smoke of a great furnace, and the sun and the air were darkened by the smoke of the pit. John talks about a star falling from heaven, getting keys, and opening up the abyss. We can see from the context that that he's talking about an angel. That an angel is is the one that receives this, this key. So we can still get a normal interpretation. Now, we do the same thing in our day with words. We have words that symbolize something. In fact, we have this same word that we use it in more than one in more than one type of context. We talk about real stars in the sky. They, the stars bright up the sky or, or lighten up the sky. We're talking about real stars that God has made. Or we talk about a baseball star. Right? We just had the baseball all-star game. And we call some of them superstars. Right? Do we mean by that that they are the ones who are up in the night sky that are... Millions of light years away, shining for us, when we call them stars, not at all. we have a we have a symbolic meaning, do you see? we mean We mean that they shine in their profession, that of all of the professional athletes, they shine above all the rest, all the rest. so we we have different meanings for words as well. We just don't often think about it in those terms. So when we come to revelation, what I'm not suggesting is that we use all of our understandings of our words and force them on the text. I'm not saying that this star is referring to someone who shined above the rest, but what I am saying is we often use words symbolically, and we'll be able to see this when we go through this um, this this book. Well, lots of ink has been spilled to discuss the nature of these different symbols, and I'll try to help us work through a proper interpretation of each. but keep in mind that John is trying to explain with earthly language, heavenly pictures. He's, trying, he's actually seeing what's going on in heaven and in these future events. And he's trying to use earthly language. Try to imagine for yourself what it would be like to, try, to describe something from 300 years from now. Something that you never saw on this earth. Maybe technology came along and, and they developed something that, you'd ne- that, that people of our day has never seen before. How would you describe something like that? Wouldn't you use words uh, or pictures of this day to describe what those things are like? That's exactly what John does. Turn to chapter 9. You're in chapter 9. Look at verse 7. John uses common things that he knows to explain these heavenly pictures or future events. Verse 7 says, "...the appearance of the locusts was like horses prepared for battle." And on their heads appeared to be crowns like gold, and their faces were like the faces of men. They had hair like the hair of women, and their teeth were like the teeth of lions. They had breastplates like breastplates of iron, and the sound of their wings was like the sound of chariots. And many horses rushing to battle, they have tails like scorpions and stings. And in their tails is their power to hurt men for five months. The one word that's repeated over and over again in those four verses is the word like. Their appearance was like horses. Their heads appeared to be crowns like gold and their faces were like the faces. So he, he can't fully explain what he's seeing. But he tries to use common things that he knows about in order to understand them. So, when we come to these symbols, we have to be careful because sometimes we try to we can go too far uh, and we can um, and we can make something symbolic that shouldn't be. So one, one uh, principle by which we can interpret this book is this: If the plain sense makes sense, then seek no other sense. Okay So when we're reading it, we're taking a normal interpretation. If the plain sense makes sense, then seek no other sense. We don't have to try to force it to be symbolic. There will be plenty of those. We'll come to those. But when, when it makes sense, we'll simply stick with, with what is plain. Now, there's two ditches to avoid when interpreting Revelation. The first is that we could, we could try to understand every detail perfectly and think that we understand the end times perfectly to the point where we can attach dates to specific events that are going to happen in the future. You ever heard of anybody that's done that? Okay. Most recently, Harold Camping, right? we got to be careful about doing that. Remember that, that, that these things are future. They will happen, but we can't attach dates to them. We can't understand it that perfectly. There are things that are left to the mystery of God. The second ditch to avoid void is the one that we probably fall into more often. And that is that it's just too complicated, so we'll set it aside. Okay, this study in Revelation, I mean, my brain is already hurting. We're still in the introduction. We just set it aside because it's too complicated. But if we do that, we ignore the beauty of this book and something that's designed for your benefit. Turn back to chapter 1 and verse 3 and let me show you something that perhaps you skipped over as we were reading, but something I think that is very important. John begins, with a pronouncement of a blessing on those who read and follow this book. Verse 3 says, Blessed is he who reads and those who hear the words of the prophecy and heed the things which are written in it, for the time is near. So, John implies here that, that this book is understandable or can be understandable. And he also implies when he says that you need to heed it, you need to follow it, it implies that there are commands that needed to be obeyed. We often think that the revelation is for scholars. We'll leave it to them. They can try to figure all those things out and understand it. But what John is saying is, blessed is he. Okay? You, you will receive a blessing from reading this book for yourself and from hearing it read and from obeying it. Turn to the last chapter. Chapter 22, verse 7. Because not only does he begin with a pronouncement of blessing to those who read it, but he ends with one as well. And this one comes from the mouth of Jesus Christ. Chapter 22, verse 7, And behold, I am coming quickly. Blessed is he who heeds the words of the prophecy of this book. So John says from the very beginning, and actually there are several blessings throughout. Blessed blessed are those who are dead, chapter 14, verse 13, who die in the Lord. Chapter 16, verse 15, blessed is the one who stays awake and keeps his clothes. In other words, he's ready for the Lord's return. Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb, chapter 19, verse 9. Blessed and holy is the one who's part of the first resurrection, 20, verse 6. And then blessed are those who wash their robes, chapter 22, verse 14 here's my guarantee for you. You stick with me for this entire series. You study along with us. You try to work through these difficult uh, truths about what is going to happen. I can tell you on the authority of Jesus Christ that He will give you a spiritual blessing. That if you follow, understand, and obey these things, you will be blessed. Now. Let me take the rest of our time to look at the content of the book. Okay, that was all introductory material. Perhaps the longest introduction you'll get. I said that John's goal, remember chapter 1, verse 1, was to show the bond servants what would soon take place. Well, what specifically is he talking about? I want to show you what the book is about and then ask five questions to show why this is important. The book, I believe, is about, I said the last times, but we could call that also the return of Christ. All these events that are talked about in chapters 4 through 22 surround the return of Christ. They're either preceding the return of Christ, they're about the actual return of Christ where he touches down on the ground, or it's the events that follow the return of Christ. And so I would say that the main topic of the book is the return of Christ. In fact, John says at the very beginning, he says, this is the revelation of Jesus Christ. So it's about Jesus Christ. It's about His return. At the end of the book, the very last verse says, Behold, I am coming quickly. So from the first to the last, it's about the return of Christ. We could also call this time the day of the Lord. The day of the Lord. That is, the time of both judgment and blessing. We'll talk about what that means here in just a second. First question I want to ask, why is Christ returning? Ultimately, Christ is returning to exalt Himself by ending the curse. Chapter 22, verse 3 says that there will no longer be any curse. Christ is coming the second time. The first time He came to die to have power over the curse. To have power over death and sin. Now He's coming to reverse the curse fully and finally. And so... Ultimately, what, why Christ is returning is to exalt Himself by by receiving great praise. He will receive great praise from from us for all of eternity for reversing this curse and putting sin away forever, putting Satan in the eternal uh, death house, which is called hell. That's why Christ is returning. Secondly, what will what will the return of Christ mean? Well, I'll explain this a little bit more in just a second, but but I I could say it in two terms. It is judgment of the wicked and vindication of the righteous. As a believer, do you ever feel like you need to be justified before people? Do people ever come to you and, and think you're just crazy because you're spending your resources, your time on following Christ? Following someone whom you've never seen? Well, in this day, it will be great joy for all believers because you will be vindicated if you are a follower of Christ, and the wicked will be judged. Number three: When will Christ return? Remember, John begins his letter by saying, "I want to tell my bond, the bond servants, or, or Jesus, the 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 bond servants of of Jesus Christ, John, and and all the followers." about the things that will soon take place. Look at chapter 22, verse 6. And he said to me, these words are faithful and true. That is the angel talking to John. And the Lord, the God of the spirits of the prophets sent His angel to show His bondservants the things which must soon take place. Verse 10. And he said to me, do not seal up the words of the prophecy of this book, for the time is near. What you have several times throughout the book is that these things will... Soon take place, and that the time is near. Other scripture writers attest to the same fact that the coming of the Lord is soon. Romans chapter thirteen, verse 12. twelve, first Peter chapter four, verse seven. So when will this return? When will this return take place? Well, we don't know the exact time. But the scripture writers are clear that it is soon. That it is near. It could happen at any time. In fact, let me point you to the next part, the next question. What will happen when He returns? This will help you to see a little bit of an outline of what's going we're going to see in this book and also what's going to happen at the end time. So the brief outline goes like this. The very next event to happen in, in the prophetic calendar is the rapture of the saints. When Jesus will meet the saints in the air and take them to be with Him. That's the very next event. That's found in chapter 3, verse 10. Sometime after the rapture, perhaps that same day, perhaps later on the week, perhaps another month, we don't know how much longer, but there will be a a seven-year period beginning with a peace treaty with the Antichrist and the nation of Israel. Seven-year tribulation is the time of judgment. That is found for you in chapters 4 through the first part of of chapter 16. At the end of that tribulation, it will include a final earthly judgment. That is the battle of Armageddon. The battle of Armageddon. You can read about that in the second part of chapter 16. So that concludes the seven-year tribulation. After that time of judgment will be a time of great blessing for all those who follow Christ. That time of blessing is a 1,000-year period where Jesus reigns on the earth called the Millennium. Millennial just means 1,000 years. It's called the Millennial Kingdom. It's it's a topic we have studied this summer in our summer preaching series. The Millennial Kingdom. Following the Millennial Kingdom, the 1,000-year reign of Jesus Christ is the Great White Throne Judgment. And that ends in chapter 20 and then following the millennial kingdom is the eternal kingdom the eternal kingdom where christ will reign as king for all of eternity we'll have a new heavens and a new earth you can read all about that in chapters 21 and 22. now i would like to uh, take some more time and, and and give you some more detail on the on this timeline unfortunately, I don't have time to do that this morning. So let me have you look at the final question. That is, how do we prepare for the return of Christ? How do we prepare for the return of Christ? Number one, recognize the true sovereign. The true sovereign over all things. Right now, in this world, in this time of delay, the time between Christ's two comings, there is a feeling, a sense in which there's a disputed sovereignty going on. Isn't there? there? That is, who really is in control of this world? If you look at all the circumstances that are going on in your life and on the news in our area or around the world, you could conclude that God is not in control because of all the evil that's going on, right? Right? And so a person could argue that really Satan is in control. And that's what Satan is trying to do, by the way. He's trying to get people to think that he really is in control. This is what he'll do throughout the seven-year tribulation. People will worship the Antichrist, his closest follower, Satan's closest follower. And yet, in the end times, there will be no disputed sovereignty. When these judgments finally come down on the earth and on the demons and Satan who have opposed Him, it will be clear who the real sovereign is. So in this book, as we study it together, we should recognize who the true sovereign is overall. Although right now, God's sovereignty seems to be on the back burner seems as if it's a disputed thing in the last days. No one will question who is in control. No one. Because every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Recognize the true sovereign over all things. You'll see that in this book. Turn to chapter 19, verse 7. And this gives us the answer to the second way we prepare for the return of Christ. Chapter 19, verse 7. Let us rejoice and be glad and give glory to Him for the marriage of the Lamb has come and His bride has made herself ready. It was given to her to clothe herself in fine linen, bright and clean, for the fine linen is the righteous act, acts of the saints. So number two, how do we prepare for the return of Christ? Get your clothes on. Get your clothes on. What are your clothes spiritually? It tells us here in verse eight. For the fine linen is the righteous acts of the saints. The life of a believer is not marked by apathy, complacency, immobility. The mark of a true believer is, mar- is the, the, a true believer is clothed with righteousness with works. The response to a life that has been changed is that we will be clothed with righteousness. We put off the sin which used to beset us. And we put on righteousness. So, get your clothes on. Number three, persevere to the end. Persevere to the end. I think this will become clear as we go through chapters 2 and 3. The message to the seven churches I was going to take some time to show you several places where this idea comes up. But, but if you read through Revelations 2 and 3, look for the word persevere. This is something that Christ continually calls His people to do and to hold fast and to continue on to overcome. In fact, He calls them overcomers. To Him who overcomes, He says at the end of each one. The idea that Christians are overcomers is that they... Overcome all the way till the end. So, one of the messages that we'll learn from this book, and we should learn, is that we prepare for the return of Christ by persevering persevering to the end. And that leads us to our fourth one, which is don't be found sleeping. Don't be found sleeping. Jesus gives a parable to help the disciples see what they need to, to do in order to be awake at the return of Christ because there are some who will wait until the last minute, and then when the bridegroom comes, then they go to light their lamps. But he says, no, that's too late. And so he gives a parable in Mark chapter 13. He says, be on the alert, for you don't know when the master of the house is coming, in case he should come suddenly and find you asleep. To be asleep spiritually is to have your clothes spiritually off. To not be doing works for God it's to be complacent. So this goes right along with the third point that we need to to persevere. So here's the powerful exhortation from Christ in Mark chapter 13. He's coming, and when He does, make sure that you're not complacent. Make sure that you haven't given up in the race. Don't procrastinate. Don't say, you know what? I'll get all things in order when He comes. I'll, I'll be ready at that time. He says, no. You need to get ready now because He could come at any time. He's like the Master coming back to His house. Don't don't have Him come back and find you sleeping when He comes. Do you believe in the coming of the Lord? Paul says in Philippians 3, verse 20, "...for our citizenship is in heaven, from which also we eagerly wait for a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform the body of our humble state into conformity with the body of His glory." by the exertion of the power that he has even to that he has even to subject all things to himself so how do we prepare for the return of Christ when martin luther was asked that question he said if i knew that the lord were coming back tomorrow you know what i would do today i would plant a tree he wasn't trying to be symbolic or cute with his answer his point was that he would do the same thing that he always does in other words He was ready for the coming of the Lord, so He wouldn't change anything. You see, if we're scrambling around to trim our lamps and trying to go after uh, uh, the things which He's telling us to do after He comes, then it's too late. We need to be ready now. We must live every day as if Christ were coming today so that we can be like Martin Luther when Christ comes. We're simply doing what we've always been doing. We're ready for Him. Peter says in 2 Peter 3.10, But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, in which the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the elements will be destroyed with intense heat, and the earth and its works will be burned up, since all these things are to be destroyed in this way. What sort of people ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness? looking for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be destroyed by burning and the elements will melt with an intense heat. Peter says, judgment is coming, so live like it. Live your life in light of the coming judgment. Live holy and godly lives, looking for and doing our part to see the coming of Christ. That doesn't mean... that that your works determine whether or not you'll receive the judgment or not. But that is an expression of the fact that Christ has changed you. If He has changed you, then you will be working for Him. Christian, are you struggling to stay awake spiritually? Be comforted by the fact that Christ will return and give you rest. And it will happen soon something that we have been longing for, something that Christians and believers of old have been longing for, and it will finally come with the visible return of Christ. And be comforted that Christ is not going to send a representative to come get you. He's coming Himself. And at that time, after the judgment occurs, the curse will be reversed. What is it that you would like the Lord to find you doing when He returns? If you knew when He was coming, what would you be doing at that time? What would you want Him to? What would you want to be thinking at that time? What would you want to be participating in? If you don't want the Master to find you doing something that you are currently participating in, or you're currently saying, or doing, or thinking, something that could be described as spiritual sleep, then don't do those things now. Because the Son of Man is coming with great power and glory. And we don't know the timing of His return, but it will be soon. And don't let Him find you sleeping spiritually. Be like Martin Luther and always be ready for His return. Let's pray. Father, we admit that it is easy to get our sight off of what is to come. We can get so captivated and distracted by the the bells and whistles of this world. And as a result, we can get our focus off of You and of Your imminent return. Thank You for the trials that You bring into our lives that help us to focus back on what is most important. We thank You for Your Word, which helps us to have that same focus. And Lord, we do long for the day when things will be made right, when it will be clear who it is that follows You and who does not. And although we don't wish judgment Upon anyone, because we certainly were deserving of it ourselves. We do pray that that day would come quickly. We do pray that Jesus Christ would soon return, and that you would make all things new, and that He would receive the greatest glory because of being exalted to the place of preeminence, the the place at the center of the universe because He has given Himself for us. May we not wait to give glory to Him at that time, but but we pray that You would help us to be awake spiritually, have our clothes on ready for for, for You to send Your Son to return. Lord, we ask for Your grace may we see the seriousness of living a life as bondservants of Jesus Christ and preparing for that return. We long for that day. We pray that You'd help us until that day comes. In Jesus' name, Amen.